And as I like to tell my, uh, my students at school that uh, the advantage of starting on time is that we presumably finish on time. Um, I will admit there's a bit of a challenge with that today. There's so much in here. Uh, so rather than going over, I'll probably just end up talking real fast. So um, I had the proper amount of coffee to hopefully make that possible. Uh, so why don't we come to the Lord in prayer? Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to enjoy one of the many hymns that you, um, in your kindness, have sovereignly provided for us to worship and to encourage us. As I talk through several important issues communicated in this hymn, please, Lord, I ask that you will keep my words from causing any confusion or disunity and help me to correctly communicate uh, uh, these points uh, and to communicate your wonder and the love that you have shown us, your people. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today we're talking about hymn number 469 uh, in your hymnal. I would encourage you to have that open. Um, how sweet and awesome is the place. Just a few points uh, of overview. This hymn was first published in 1707. Make sure I have my clicker. This hymn was first published in 1707 in Watts Hymns and Spiritual Songs. And here you can see an original uh, title page uh, of, this, uh, of this piece, of this book. Um, it was published in seven stanzas of four lines and was based on Luke 14, 16 through 17. Uh, you'll notice, by the way, seven stanzas. We have six. I did bring the extra stanza um, that's, that's not listed. The original, uh, the original verse 2 is not in there. Um, and and I'll, re I'll read that a little later. In Luke 14, 16 to 17, which reads... But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and, inv and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. In the Augustine book of 1849, it was titled, How Sweetly Awful is the Place. And in the Baptist hymnal, the Baptist hymnal of 1879, it was titled, How Sweet and Sacred is the Place. So just a quick point about this, uh, about the title. Some of us in here, including me, are probably old enough to remember when it was called How Sweet and Awful uh, is the Place. All right. Um, I believe it was number 271 uh, in the Old Trinity Hymnal, which was published in 1961. Uh, and for those of you who are interested, uh, in, that, in that hymnal, the meter was 3-2, whereas if you look in your book, you'll see that the meter is 3-4, meaning those numbers at the beginning of the left hand of the staves, you'll see the numbers 3-4. Uh, the big difference, of course, in 3-4, the quarter note gets to beat, and 3-2, the half note gets to beat. Uh, and I can explain uh, why that's a thing, but I would probably have to go back into a thousand years of history of musical notation to do that, uh, so maybe, maybe I can do that another time. The Revised Trinity Hymnal, published in 1990, you can take a look up there, it's the same one that you have. It, of course, reads, How Sweet and Awesome, uh, and uh, as you see, is number 469. Uh, you also notice, too, if you look up in the very top left, 
the very top left of that page on page four, uh, of 469. I'm sorry. There we go. Thank you. I've got the peanut gallery up here to help me. Uh, and I love my peanut gallery. Yeah, there we go. Okay, good. Uh, so we're all probably, oh, yeah. Anyway, if you look at the top left of this page, look at the word. It says election. So you can see the uh, right away uh, the, the topic that's uh, going to be dealt with here. So we're probably all aware, you know, sweet and awful, sweet and awesome, right? We're probably all aware of how uh, words, meaning of words, uh, or perhaps uh, perception of words have changed through the years. Uh, one of my favorite examples is uh, if you think of the end of the Flintstones uh, theme song, it says that we'll have a gay old time, right? And of course, that meant something different then, didn't it? Think of the word awful, all right? Think of the word awful. Without going into the etymology of the word, just look at the word awful at face value. Full of all, right? Uh, we don't perceive it or use it that way now. Uh, and uh, frankly, to help me belabor the point, there is a story of Queen Anne uh, being taken into St. Paul's, Paul's Cathedral uh, in London after its completion. The architect, uh, Sir Christopher Wren, gave her a personal tour. And then so Wren asked her, uh, he says, Well, Majesty, what do you think? And she responded, It is awful and artificial. Ouch, right? Well, he was actually deeply moved by her response. Uh, her response meant, and everyone at the time would have known it, that it was awe-inspiring, full of all, uh, and that it showed great skill and artifice, right? Not artificial in the sense of looking fake, uh, which is how we use the word today. Of course, awesome is presently an overused American term. I think we, all, we, we can all know that. Uh, the love of God is awesome. The Airbus A330neo is awesome. Any dessert with caramel is awesome. You get the point. And all of this is fine. I'm not complaining to the fine folks uh, that, that do the Trinity hymnal. Um, and frankly, I'm just having a little fun with it, to be, off, to, uh, to be uh, honest. Um, although I will point out, admittedly, a uh, little tongue-in-cheek, that if awful means full of all, then what does all some mean? Some all? So yeah, it seems like a downgrade. Um, anyway, just a little, little fun with that. This hymn gives us a glimpse of how the doctrine of election and the Great Commission live in harmony. And, and this is a good thing. When these two truths are properly viewed together this way, it should not cause disunity. If we misuse it for the purpose of causing disunity, then we're sinning. When we use it properly, it displays the wisdom and love and wonder of God in a most powerful way. And we'll get into this a little, a little deeper later. A few words about Isaac Watts. So the story is told, uh, and I'm going to have to read this, forgive me. The story is told of the Watts family gathering for their daily worship. Young six-year-old Isaac started to chuckle in the middle of a prayer. Not something that dad was happy about. Apparently, he had spotted a mouse running up the bell rope that hung in the fireplace. And this verse came to six-year-old uh, young Isaac. He suddenly, he suddenly spits this out. He says, there was a mouse for want of stairs, ran up a rope to say his prayers. 
Uh, Dad was not terribly impressed, so he reached for a stick to discipline young Isaac. And then young Isaac fell to his knees and he says, Oh, Father, Father, pity take, and I will no more verses make. Isaac Watts was born on July 17, 1674 in Southampton. Uh, he was the son of a schoolmaster and was said to have shown remarkable precocity as a child. Uh, he began studying Latin at four, and he started writing respectable verse at the age of seven. Uh, and later, his father opened a school in Southampton, and, I, and Isaac's mother wanted to have a competition for all of his students, uh, and it was a competition for writing poetry. Uh, and the winner of which would, re, uh, would receive a farthing. Uh, so the young seven-year-old Isaac at this point uh, wrote the following. I write not this for a farthing, but to try. How I your farthing writers can outvie. When Isaac was 14 to 15 years old, or 14 and 15 years old, uh, he wrote the following two brief lines in what was essentially his diary. 1688 fell under considerable convictions of sin, 1689, and was taught to trust in Christ, I hope. Um, and then the following lines of verse give us a brief glimpse into to how he viewed his conversion. And I quote, How heavy is the night that hangs upon our eyes till Christ with his reviving light over our souls arise. Our guilty spirits dread to meet the wrath of heaven, but... In his righteousness arrayed, we see our sins forgiven. And thanks to the act of uniformity uh, imposed by Charles II, Isaac's father suffered greatly because uh, the, the purpose of the act was to crush any dissent from the set prayers and canons of the Church of England. Uh, and the early sufferings of his family obviously left a mark on Isaac, and this can be seen in verses written later year, in his later years, such as the following. I'm not ashamed to own my Lord or defend his cause. Maintain the honor of his word, the glory of his cross. Jesus, my God, I know his name. His name is all my trust, nor will he put my soul to shame, nor let my hope be lost. A local physician, seeing the promising young Isaac, actually offered to pay to send him to college. Well, of course, if he was going to go to the colleges that this guy was going to re uh, recommend him for, he would have to convert uh, to, uh, to be Anglican, to become Anglican. But as a nonconformist, he refused. So therefore, at the age of 16, uh, young Isaac went to London to study at the Nonconformist Academy uh, at Stoke Newington under the care of Reverend Thomas Rowe, the pastor of Independent Congregation at Girdler's Hall. Um, and then Isaac Watts, by the way, later became a member there in 1863, or excuse me, 1693. At the age of 20, he had finally had enough. And this, this is good. At the age of 20, he finally had enough of the uh, singing he had to do in church. He described it as doggerel verse. All right, you look that word up later. So, uh, and he was, he, was, he was upset about the doggerel verse that he was made to sing in church. So he goes home, he complains to dad, and dad responds like any self-respecting dad would. If you think you can do better, do it. So he did. And he writes his first hymn at the age of 20, uh, which is, Behold the Glories of the Lamb. And I'm going to read the first verse of that. But before I read the first verse of that, um, <laughs> I dug up an example of what he, an example of what he would have had to have seen in the church uh, that upset him so much. Uh, so hang on. Here, here's an example of what he referred to as doggerel verse. By reason of my groaning voice, my bones cleaved my skin. 
as pelican and wilderness, such case now am I in. And as an owl in the desert is, lo, I am such a one. Ouch. Okay. Uh, so in contrast, here's uh, the first verse of young Isaac's hymn. Behold the glories of the Lamb amidst his Father's throne. Prepare new honors for his name and songs before unknown. Uh, and over the next two years, he wrote most of the hymns that we all know and love. Uh, and his motivation for writing the hymns was to, quote, raise the standard of praise. Uh, and the point of me reading some of this, by the way, is just to make the point that he was obviously gifted by God from the beginning with this particular gift. And obviously God in his sovereignty used that. He, of course, is the author of many hymns that we sing or have sung. Uh, I went through and counted in our hymnal, and there's 36. There's 36 of his hymns in our Trinity hymnal. Um, Isaac Watts comes from a 17th, uh, 18th century understanding of independence congregationalism, one that was very Calvinistic. Uh, the Congregationalist Confession of Faith, uh, which, by the way, is called the Savoy Declaration, uh, was actually the John Owen version of the Westminster Confession. Uh, real quickly, in 1698, he became the assistant minister of the Independent Church, uh, Berry Street in London. And in 1702, he became the pastor. In 1712, he had accepted an invitation to visit Sir Thomas Abney at his residence at Abney Park, and at his request made it his home for the remainder of his life, partly because he was struggling with such physical infirmities. Um, he continued to write hymns, many of which to be sung after his sermons, uh, he specifically wrote hymns to sing after sermons so that it would give expression to the meaning of the text that he just preached about. Uh, I did a little digging. Um, digging is fun. And I found something interesting in the dictionary. Uh, that's hard to read. It's the Dictionary of Hymnology by John Julian from 1892. Um, and there was uh, a lot of good information here where it's interesting, actually early on, John Julian in, in 1892, they thought that a lot of the original music that Watts wrote was lost. Uh, then later, it was found. They found three original copies, and he refers to that in a later edition in 1707. Um, Watts died November 25, 1748. In his annotations of the hymnal published in 1872, another fun primary source, Charles Hitchens quotes the following from page 325, and this is important. 325 of the memorials of Westminster Abbey. And take note that this was written by a contemporary champion of Anglican Orthodox, uh, Orthodoxy. All right, And this is, a, this is him writing about a nonconformist. Uh, and, and I quote, Happy will be that reader whose mind is disposed by his verses or his prose to imitate him in all but his nonconformity to copy his benevolence to men and his reverence to God. Uh, of course, we took note of the point of um, uh, copy him in all but his nonconformity, right? Uh, and then John Julian, again in this 1907 Dictionary of Hymnology, wrote of Watts, and I quote, His learning and piety, gentleness and largeness of heart have earned him the title of Melanchthon of his day. All right? And, and uh, if you don't know who he is, it's definitely worth looking up. So I want to end this section about Isaac Watts by reading from one of my sources, which, by the way, we have... Oh, there's Philip Melanchthon, by the way. Yeah. I like the beard. Uh, yeah, so this is a book, by the way, that's in our library, and I, and I commend that to you. Uh, it's, it's, it's a wonderful book. Uh, so this is, this is the end of the section on, on Isaac Watts in that book. And, and listen carefully. 
Many years earlier, he had written, There is a house not made with hands, eternal and on high, and here my waiting spirit stands till God shall bid it fly. And it was in that same frame of mind that George Whitfield found him uh, when he visited him just a half hour before his death. When he asked the dying man how he was, Whitfield received the reply, I am one of Christ's waiting servants. The wait was nearly over, and on 25 November 1748, Isaac Watts was at last ushered into the land of pure delight of which he had sung and experienced the fulfillment of that hope expressed long years before in this verse he wrote. Then shall I see and hear and know all I desired or wished below, and every power find sweet employ in that eternal world of joy. Um, in addition to his hymns, by the way, Watts' writings in theology and philosophy were numerous. Among these, just a few examples, speculations on the human nature of the logos, the improvement of the mind, 1741, logic, which we actually got a copy of uh, and is very interesting to read through. And ironically, by the way, that book was used as a textbook at Oxford, right? Uh, catch the irony. It was used as a textbook at Oxford well into the 20th century. Uh, the World to Come, 1745, Catechism, Scripture, History, 1732, The Divine and Moral Songs, 1709, uh, and The Psalms, 1719. Uh, real quickly, I want to say a few words about the music itself. Uh, personally, I think this is one of, if not the most beautiful music in the entire hymnal. Uh, music is subjective, so it's totally expected that everybody would have a different one to say, and that's okay. That's a good thing. Um, but, but for me personally, this is one of the most beautiful hymns, the most beautiful hymn uh, in the entire hymnal, not only in terms of the music, but the text. The tune for this hymn is St. Columbo. Not, not Columbo, not Columbo, but St. Columba. St. Columba, an Irish abbot and missionary credited spreading Christianity in Scotland. So to be clear, there are actually two tunes called St. Columba. One is an Anglican uh, and one is Irish. Ours, of course, today is Irish and based on an old Irish folk song. It was first published in 1855 by George Petrie and was republished in a compilation edited by Charles Stanford, who, by the way, wrote several works for clarinet, which uh, I'm a little bit partial to. Um, it was described as having been sung on the de dedication of a chapel in County Londonderry. Some of you might recognize that. Uh, the tune was paired with the hymn, The King of Love My Shepherd Is, uh, in the English hymnal from 1906. And it was with that pairing that this, uh, at the time, rather obscure tune became popular. Uh, as you can see, there are 11 different texts that use this tune. The most common are How Sweet and Awesome is the Place and King of Love My Shepherd Is. Uh, like Silent Night, which I had the pleasure of talking about the last time I was here, this hymn is in 3-4 time. Um, why is that important? Well, for starters, you very rarely hear an unhappy tune in 3-4 time. Um, and mainly it's a dance beat. 3-4 all through history is a dance beat. Uh, pretty much all of the dances in history are in 3-4. Not saying that this hymn is the, pur the purpose of it is for us to get up and dance while we sing it, uh, but the fact that it is a hymn that should bring joy uh, when, when we sing it. The melody itself is exceedingly accessible to congregation. It's easy to sing. Uh, as you can see, it just kind of goes up and down the scale. Uh, it's very comfortable music to listen to, and it's very comfortable to sing. That's a consideration, by the way, um, that some churches miss. In their zeal to do something new and exciting that they can put in their bulletin, assuming they have a bulletin, um, they end up choosing music uh, that most of the congregation 
can't sing. And so therefore, most of the congregations end up not participating in this part of worship. Then they become not a congregation. Then at that point, they become an audience. Only listening to others sing hymns is not what we're supposed to do in worship. All right? We're supposed to do that, but we're also supposed to sing. Think of it this way. If everybody did nothing but listen, then there would be nothing to listen to. All right? So, so we all participate in worship. Not to mention, by the way, that the fact that the melody is relatively easy to sing frees our mind up to pay more attention to the text. And that's equally important. Uh, you'll note in the hymnal that although the tune itself is probably two or three hundred years old, it was actually, uh, the arrangement we have is from 1990. All right, real quickly, let's, well, yeah, I just told a fib, I think. Not real quickly, but I'll do the best I can. The text, the text. This hymn deals with a doctrine that is left alone, uh, largely left alone in the universal art of hymnody, election. Um, again, top left, election. Or maybe more specifically, uh, we could think of it in terms of God's effectual calling of sinners to himself. And as we'll see in this hymn, it is about his choosing of those sinners in his love to receive the benefits of salvation. And I firmly believe that to fully appreciate this hymn uh, and what it communicates, we must rightly understand this doctrine. And we must rightly respond to this doctrine. All right? What would be the response? Well, perhaps a heart that cries out, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Uh, Because of our sin, the gap between God and man is so great that we can't possibly reach out. We can't possibly reach out to Him. But God reaches to us, and He can reach to us, and that's exactly what He did. Parks put it excellently last week, by the way, when he said that we sing out of an overflow of the heart, a heart of gratitude. So this is certainly a hymn on the sovereignty of God as it relates to salvation. Not many hymn writers are bold enough to go straight there like Watts does here. Um, And just to be clear, I'm not up here this morning to attempt to debate this topic. Uh, Frankly, there's no need in this this group, right? Because it's clear in the Bible. We all believe the Bible as being the infallible and errant word of God. So that's not something I feel the need to debate up here. Um, But what I do want to do is explain this in such a way that when you sing this hymn, and you fully understand it, that perhaps you'll have to fight back tears as you understand what it is that it's communicating. Um, It's an amazing, unwarranted love shown to you and to me. Why is it that we came and others didn't? What is the origin of that? Real quickly, what is effectual calling? I think this is important. There we go. This is from the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 10. The writing is a little bit more complicated, so... Focus hard. All those who God hath predestined unto life, and those only he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time, effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by, in which they are by nature, to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills and by almighty power, determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet so, as they come most freely, being made willing, being made willing by His grace. Here are a few quick quick scripture verses that communicate uh, this truth. Um, 
Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. A few quick points. If you look at verse 29, foreknew does not mean foresaw. All right. Technically, that's a pagan concept, by the way. This is an eternal decree, and you'll notice that decree is singular, right? Uh, it's not a bunch of indi individual decrees that can change daily. Um, notice in verse 29, the past, he predestined, all right? The present, the future, referring to when we will be glorified. Um, and if you look in verse 30, it's interesting that he talks about our future in the past tense, right? Um, as if it's certain and already occurred. Romans eleven seven, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Ephesians one ten and eleven. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth, in Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Uh, by the way, not the counsel of my will or my opinion or even my speculations, uh, not salvation by survey, it's the counsel of His will. It's a mystery how God's sovereignty and man's will work together but we know it does. Um, I want to commend you a book that we have here in the library. I think it's by J.I. Packer. Uh, it's called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Um, I read through that a few months ago, and it was so clear dealing with this situation. Uh, he doesn't create a straw dog argument. This is important. He doesn't create a straw dog argument um, as many on both sides of any argument tend to do. He presents them both honestly and explains it and resolves uh, any seeming contradiction you might think exists. Uh, he refers to this apparent contradiction as an antimony, um, as it is an apparent contradiction between two truths. All right, so we, we talk about paradoxes and, and dichotomies. What's interesting here is that it is two truths that are seemingly contradictory. Um, in, in this case, of course, there is no contradiction. Uh, it's perhaps a secret thing that belongs to the Lord, right? Deuteronomy 29, 29. But our mandate, our responsibility is uh, to understand the word that he has revealed to us. Uh, we can trust in God's character and remember, remember at the end of the day, salvation is by grace alone. We all know this, through faith alone. We all know that. We say that, we hear that, we read that, we agree with that when somebody says it. Uh, but the question is, do we live it? All right, and the word is alone, not mostly or partly. I've heard it described, by the way, uh, from friends um, in other denominations that when God saves his people, he's essentially throwing out a life preserver into the water, and then he essentially stands there crossing his fingers hoping that you'll grab, grab on. That's not faith alone, right? That's not grace alone. That's partly. That makes God dependent on us. So if we go with the life preserver analogy, then it's like throwing a life preserver to a man already dead. Is he going to grab it? Why did Paul say that we're dead in our sin? Was he kidding? Did he mean mostly dead? These are things this hymn gets us to think about, and that's good. Also, by the way, this hymn is sometimes used uh, during communion uh, because of the reference to a feast and being invited to the feast. Uh, so let's look through each verse together and see what we can find. The hymn is so rich with treasures uh, that we're not going to get to everything. 
but I'm still going to have to talk fast. The title and beginning of the verse grab us with this idea, how sweet and awesome is a place where we can fellowship with Christ. And what better way of describing this place than at the Lord's table? When seeing these words, some may think about it uh, that it's referring to us coming to church and as sweet and necessary as that obviously, obviously is, that's not really what this text is talking about. Um, it's talking more about our communion in Christ and what it means to be a Christian uh, in fellowship with other Christians. And then um, the verbiage at the end of the first verse uh, would have grabbed the attention, by the way, of uh, the people that he wrote this for during his time period uh, a little quicker, when it says, while everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. So in the time of Watts and probably two or three hundred years afterwards, particularly in Britain, uh, if you're a shopper, the open air market was rather ubiquitous. And so you walked around and saw the different stores where they had all their produce and products laid out. And then if you were fortunate, you perhaps could buy some of the choicest of some of those stores, all right? Um, so if you picture this setting and consider the phrase choices of her stores, you can see that only the best is set before you at the table. What's this communicating? It's communicating that this is a picture of overwhelming generosity and provision. That image continues to the next four verses, by the way, uh, and that's important. Why? Because one of the tricks of the devil, one of the tricks of the devil is to convince people that God's love is reluctant miserly, stingy. What the devil does not want us to see is the truth that God gives his love to us fully. Satan wants, to th wants us to think that God is holding back, right? Uh, that, that, that he's not giving us everything. Uh, he's holding out on us. But is this not exactly what happened in the garden? God gave Adam and Eve all these things to look at and to enjoy. But that one thing he said to stay away from, oh, they, they messed up, didn't they? You know, they lacked trust, they lacked obedience, and they lacked a thankful heart. It reminds me of another, another one of my favorite hymns, uh, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way. Verse 2, why were you, why was I invited to this feast? We could think of the call from Matthew eleven twenty eight: Come unto me, all you, who, uh, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Some hear that voice, some don't. Why? Why do some of my friends not hear it? Or, or perhaps as I continue to pray for them, why have they not heard it yet? Uh, friends, family members, and so many others do not hear his voice. Why did I? Why did you? Why was I made to hear it? Was it me? My intuition? My cleverness? Was it something special about me? Was it my tie, which Abigail put out for me this morning? Thank you. Um, this hymn drives you to think about this truth, right? That it is all of God and all of grace from beginning to end. This, of course, leads us into a discussion of one of the more important uh, yet argued over doctrines in the Bible that need to be dealt with. Should we stay away from it? You know, somebody might disagree with me. Someone might get mad, right? But it is a doctrine that we must understand. We've got to grapple with it. For the sake of this lesson, by the way, I'm just going to stick with the, within the four corners of this particular text we're working with. Uh, but as you can see, there is still plenty to talk about. Verse 3, and this is where we get to the meat of it, right? Whereas John Wayne would say, this is where we get to the rat killing, right? The gospel calls out to the whole world. The gospel calls out to the whole world and many don't respond. Note the wording, when thousands make a wretched choice. God didn't make the choice for them to ignore the call. 
they made the choice, being dead and, and slaves to sin, they ignored the call. Again, Satan would love for us to either refuse to believe what the Bible clearly says, right? Usually by using our, our projection, i.e. applying our fallen idea and finite idea of fairness. We're applying our fallen and fine idea of how we would do it. Um, or Satan would love for us to believe the biblical doctrines here, but then to come to a false conclusion that God is capricious and arbitrary. I've heard that uh, as an attack against this uh, uh, doctrine that he's capricious and arbitrary. Capricious, by the way, means this, given to sudden and unaccountable changes of mood or behavior. Nope, that doesn't describe God. His word doesn't change. God doesn't change. The way to salvation does not change. What about the word arbitrary? Arbitrary means based on random choice or personal whim rather than any reason or system. Does that describe God in any way? No. We see God's peaceful, orderly design we see God's peaceful, orderly design within his person and his creation. 1 Corinthians 14.33. So um, I think I, I pointed this out previously in, in one of my talks that as a North Carolinian, particularly from Charlotte, I am in fact contractually obligated to every so often con, uh, quote Billy Graham. So you might think, how am I going to quote Billy Graham for this discussion? Uh, well, uh, in, in, in context of God's order and control of all things, uh, he, quote, he says the following, and I quote, The trouble with our modern thinking is that we have a conception that God is a haphazard God with no set rules of life and salvation. Ask the astronomer if God is a haphazard God. He will tell you that every star moves the precision in its celestial path. Ask the scientist if God is a haphazard God. He will tell you that his formulas and equations are fixed and that to ignore the laws of science would be a fool's folly. If the laws in the material realm are so fixed and exact, is it reasonable that God could afford to be haphazard in the spiritual realm where eternal destinies of souls are at stake? Just as God has equations and rules in the material realm, God has equations and rules in the spiritual. There was a time early on where Albert Einstein and Niels Bohr got into a little tiff Right, uh, Niels Bohr, of course, was all about quantum mechanics, where he said it was all about indeterminacy. Um, Albert Einstein with general relativity, they're searching for some sort of unified field theory. Um, but Albert Einstein's response to Bohr was, God does not play dice. All right, So even, even Einstein understood that. As believers, our hearts have tasted of God's goodness and grace. And they know that both the reason why we've been invited and the reason why we've accepted this invitation is all rooted in the love of God uh, working in us. To use the language of John, we love because he first loved us. We've all heard those words a thousand times, but just make sure that you focus on the words because and first. We love because he first loved us. Jesus does indicate that there's a gospel call that goes out sincerely and universally. This call, however, goes on deaf ears and they do not respond. Many of us have seen this firsthand when we try to witness to family or friends. Uh, they basically just respond with indifference. Uh, some hear his voice, some don't. Why? Um, I think of John 3 when Jesus talks about how some are born again by the Holy Spirit. And remember, uh, you can't birth yourself the first time or the second time. Um, so when this happens, when you are born again, you're born from above, then you are able to understand uh, spiritual things. Your eyes are open to spiritual things that they would otherwise not be. Verse 4, 
And there's more of this in this verse, isn't there? Uh, he says, uh, the Lord sweetly drew us in. What would happen if he didn't sweetly draw us in? We would refuse to come. We would refuse to taste and then we would perish in our sin. Now, one of the most common concerns this biblical truth, uh, with this truth is that if God does everything first and is involved to the very end in terms of our salvation from beginning to end, then we don't have, to work, we don't have free will, right? Or uh, there's no need for evangelism. Interestingly, verse 5 deals with this. Let's read through the verse real quick. Uh, in fact, I'll just do this real quickly. Uh, Pity the nations, O our God, constrain the earth to come. Send thy victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home. Um, we'll find it's a beautiful juxtaposition here that you'll see also in the Bible in just a second. Um, so it's an immediate prayer for world missions. Why? Is Isaac Watts dumb? Doesn't he understand that there's no need for missions or evangelism if the pre preceding verses are true? No. We know that the only reason we are here is because of the love of God. So, Lord, bring the nations in. It's the exact flow of logic that we have in the psalm. Uh, you know, and I'm not dumb either. I get the fact that people, some people can see this as a contradiction, but it's not. Think of this. What is the most powerful tool that we're given as believers? Right? Yeah, in addition to, in addition to having his reveal, revealed word, um, we are given and called to pray. So follow this logic. First, effectual calling. This means that when God calls you to be a Christian, you will become a Christian. You're not going to surprise him. You will be born again. So if God called if God called everybody in the world through history to become a Christian, then everyone all through history would be going to heaven. And we know this isn't the case. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy, that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So therefore God... Checking my time. So therefore, God has not called everyone in this sense to his table. Second, do I or anyone in this room somehow mystically know who God has called or not called? No. Uh, also, and don't forget this, as Parks reminded us last week, God lives outside of time. Any idea that we might have of unfairness with this whole doctrine could only actually be considered unfair if God was bound by space-time the same, same way as we are as finite beings. I often make this point to someone who tries to say it's uh, just foreknowledge, that you know God looks down the corridor of time and he sees that you will put your faith in Christ and therefore he puts your name in the book of life. Okay, so does God have the ability to be surprised? In other words, if throughout history God knew I was going to make a left turn at this stoplight, am I going to surprise him and get to that stoplight and make a right turn? No, All right? I will make that left turn. And by the way, who is it making that left turn? I'm doing it. I mean, there's not like some divine hand coming down and forcing me to do that. Um, if God knows before time that you would put your faith in Christ, do you have the ability to surprise him and not put your faith in Christ? No. So it is before the beginning of time, shall we say, written in stone that you will be saved. Did you write that in stone or did somebody else write that in stone? Um, I, think, I think we know the answer. Pastor David said it last week when looking at Ephesians 3, God set us apart for salvation before the beginning of time. Psalm 103, the love of God is from everlasting to everlasting. Names were written in the book of life before the foundations of the world. If we at any time pray to the Lord uh, for someone's salvation, then we obviously understand this concept. 
that God must move first, right? Because otherwise, what are you praying for? If you don't believe or understand this concept, then you're forced to believe that praying to God for someone's salvation will do no good. So there's no need to do it. Because remember, in that view, God is just standing up, crossing his fingers, hoping that you're going to grab the life preservers. Those who understand the Augustinian view of election are often accused of marginalizing the need for missions and prayer. Yet we understand that God works in the heart of man and uses the means of our prayers to bring it to pass. Those who believe that man initiates the act of his own salvation are actually marginalizing prayer. Because then there's nothing for you to pray for. There's nothing for you to ask God to do, right? They're essentially depending on one man to convince another man. That's what we call man-centric. And now to close the loop. When does God determine one's salvation? Right? And think of this in context of praying for somebody's salvation. When does God determine one's salvation? Does he decide it right after you pray for, uh, pray for your friend? Does he decide it just before he saves your friend? Or does he decide it before the foundations of the world? Well, I believe because of the teaching we get from the pulpit, everybody here knows that, and that's a blessing. Uh, God is not surprised. God does not change his mind. He is the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow or due to change. Uh, no variation or shadow due to change. So, why do we pray, evangelize, and engage in missions? Well, first of all, because our heavenly Father tells us to. Um, that's a pretty good reason in itself. Also, if we understand that missions at the end of the day is about God's sovereignty, then we should pray that he would use those means to bring people in. This is what's happening in this verse, right? And he understands that. Missionaries famously talk about how they can go to sleep at night and sleep well, right? Because they do their work during the day that they're called to do, and then they can go to bed at night and realize and not have to worry about if their work is working, all right? Um, because it's in God's hands. And speaking of means, by the way, um, just to be careful, we don't want, we'll engage in a logical fallacy if we assume that God has chosen the means, or if God chose the means, then it doesn't matter, right? In our fallen hearts, that might make some sort of logical sense, but it's never biblical logic. The logic is always, because God chose the means, the means most definitely matter. Send your victorious word abroad. How does God do that? through preachers, missionaries, evangelists, and all of us. God in His love sent the invitation, enabled us to respond to the invitation, and has given us a call to approach the throne of grace and to ask God to go to the nations with that invitation. Remember, if that's how you came to know the Lord, that's how others are going to come to know the Lord. We have the joy of being His, uh, what's a good word, His emissaries, uh, if you will, in all of this. God does not need us for him to accomplish a single thing, does he? Why does he include us? He involves us in his work, right? Because he loves us and he knows that it's good for us. That's why he does that. He does that because he knows that it's good for us if he has chosen to involve us in his work, right? So let's get to it. All right, verse 6. One thing that I hear a lot from folks from other denominations is that Calvinists are uh, kind of superior and they, they think they are the only ones going to heaven. They accuse us of... Uh, calling ourselves the chosen race and that we don't care about anybody else, right? Um, and that's obviously false. But look at the first line of the verse. We long to see thy churches full. We want more to come to Christ, to fill our churches and to worship with one voice. It's quite the opposite of the caricature that, that's sometimes painted against us. Both sides of any debate, by the way, remember this, both sides of any debate must be very careful to not make the mistake to judge a belief system by its abuses. And that very often happens to this concept. One thing to keep in mind, by the way, is that as a church, what is our chief mission? 
Yes, it's not missions, is it? It's worship. Missions exist because there are places that worship doesn't. At the last day when the multitude from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation um, is gathered around the throne, missions will no longer be a thing, but worship will, and it will continue to be forever. The goal of missions is to bring in that multitude. I mean, our church is be full, right? To bring in that multitude to the enjoyment of the worship and glory of God. This is the picture this verse paints. Um, think of the last prayer of Jesus in John 17. All those whom the Father has given to him may be with him and may be one. And it is that prayer that is prayed uh, in this final verse. I want us to sing through this quickly. Um, and I want us to be able to come with thankful hearts, not boastful hearts. And let's stand together and let's sing through this. Uh, it's 469.
want to read one little paragraph from Sinclair Ferguson. The next time you read this, I want you to think of this. And I apologize for leaving us uh, late here. Um, explaining, let's see, Dr. Ferguson writes, the chief reason for this weakness of the Christian church in the West, for the weakness is of the weakness of our witness, for the lack of real vitality in our worship probably lies here. We sing about amazing grace, and we speak of amazing grace, but it has far too often ceased to amaze us at all. We have lost the joy and energy that is experienced when grace seems truly amazing. Every time we ever sing this hymn, I want you all to think about those words and think about how it applies to you. Let's pray together. Precious Heavenly Father, thank you for this time of learning and fellowship. Please bless us this morning as we come to worship you. By your spirit, I pray that you will help us to worship well in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen.